everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 146 with Emily K. Harrison. Emily leads Square Product Theater, which is based out of Boulder, Colorado, and we also talk about her academic career. She is one of those folks in this industry that I look up to because I feel she so definitely balances the academic with that fierce love of production and making sure that new plays get out in the world as well as devised pieces with Square Product Theater. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 146 with Emily K. Harrison. to welcome the force that is Emily K. Harrison to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. So tell us where you are coming from. Yeah, so I am from today. I am zooming in from the village of Clinton, New York. Um, It's a very snowy day here. There was a like six car pileup outside of my apartment earlier today. So it's exciting times. And right now you are in... One of the things I really admire about you is you are one of those really few, I mean, few folks that I think of in the field that really does that balance of the academic stuff and then also producing um, and does it on a really regular basis. And I know for a while you were sort of bouncing around with academic positions, but tell me about this new tenure track position. Yeah, yeah, I was bouncing around. I was all over the place, but now I am in a tenure track position as an assistant professor of theater at Hamilton College, which is a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And uh, yeah, it feels like such a blessing to finally have landed a job. I, I was applying for job, jobs, these jobs, academic jobs for a few years and kind of not really, um, not really getting the offers that I wanted in the places that felt like they would fit, you know, like I, I went to a few places where there were offers, but then it was like, I just don't know that it's the right fit. And I don't want to waste people's time, you know, and this really felt like the right fit. The students are great. The faculty are great. The college is really, really supportive um, of its faculty. Like they, you know, help fund our research, which for me is, is my theatrical practice for the most part. And yeah, it's fantastic. And it's beautiful here. That's awesome. How do you, uh, I don't know, how do you, how do you, and how do you think that we need to approach theater and academia, especially in undergraduate in 2022 it's a wild the stage manager on the 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 last show that I directed was saying that she did not have a single undergraduate year that was untouched Mm. by COVID and that has completely changed the way that she thinks about producing theater how do you program what you're working on with these students and if you can just sort of share what's what's top of mind for them yeah well I mean for them a lot of them are really very I mean I'm working with a very, very intelligent student population. And so sometimes that means they have a lot of anxiety about the world (laughs) that we're living in, which is, uh, you know, fair. There's a lot of crazy, crazy stuff going on in the world. Um, But they're very, you know, they want to be treated with respect. They want to be treated like people. Um, They're very, very curious. They want to be provided with a space where they can ask questions and it's not they're not treated like anything is a stupid question. And they, they really want, you know, they are students who really want a better balance, I think, than, 
than what has historically been the case in the American theater. Um, as you well know, we just work, 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 work until we're dead. Um, and we don't get a lot of sleep and we don't, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not always taking care of ourselves very well, both physically or emotionally, um, just because of the expectations that the industry has. And so I think, you know, we're really working now with a student population who is very, very conscious of the need to, to take care of themselves, to, to, to get rest, to, to take care of their psychological and emotional health and lives. And, um, and I think that's really great. And they're also just, you know, a generation of students who are so open to whatever they're so yeah. open to other ways of thinking and looking at things and other ways of being they're not as you know black and white sort of oriented i think as so many of us have historically been and um, there's they're they're a little more willing to explore the in between you know i love that i've been having it's a really interesting cultural conversation right now in terms of i mean i think we're contemporaries of each other but when i was in school for theater you know you got this slate of Stanislavski, you know, Stanislavski, you know, you get introduction to at least what the method was, um, Mm -hmm. Meisner, um, Uta Hagen, Hagen, oh my God. Hagen, yeah. I'm going to get kicked out of theater. (laughs) You are fired from theater. Fired. But that was, I mean, I feel at least the professional actors that came in and taught us the expectation was you're going to be lucky if you get a theater job and if you do you Mm -hmm. give yourself over completely to it yeah and i am doing math about my age that's about 20 years ago a little a little less than 20 years ago that i'm in undergraduate school and Mm -hmm. that was something that was really important to me when i was teaching undergrad was to let students know that one there is no right way to do theater in terms of acting like yeah the rules are be respectful, take care of yourself, be respectful mm-hmm. of the people that you are around, like basic rules of like any workplace or collaborative yeah. form, like those yeah. hold true throughout. But I would say to them and repeatedly throughout a semester, do not believe anyone who says there's only one methodology for the way that you're going about crafting a character. Yeah. And also know that these instructors who are teaching you if something comes across that doesn't bode, if if you if you get a red flag that comes up, don't be afraid to question your instructors. Because I know that was a fear mm-hmm. that I yeah. had going yeah. through undergraduate. And so it's very heartening for me to see this. I mean, would we call them generation? Are they Gen Z? Is that- I guess. I mean, I don't, I have no idea. I don't even know what, I'm not quite a millennial. I'm like, tail end of gen x i think and so i think they are gen z are they i guess i think they are because i'm an elder millennial i'm 37 Mm -hmm. and i'm considered an elder millennial yeah so elder (laughs) (laughs) yeah they did they said i was born in the 70s yeah they said wearing 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 a hat that has reindeer antlers on it yeah okay so we're we're contemporaries but we have a little bit of different yeah. stuff to the table so what do you program in terms of curriculum and production yeah. um yeah you excite these folks but then also give them the competitiveness they need to mm-hmm. go out then in the world if they do pursue theater as a vocation yeah that's a great question so they need to i mean they the bottom line is they do need to learn the sort of Stanislavski and methodology so that they because that is the still the baseline for so much of what happens 
But what I tell them all the time is like, you can mix and match. There's no reason you can't take some things from that methodology and combine it with other things that really work for you. They're going to make you the, the actor you want to be. I'm teaching right now. I'm teaching this semester. I taught a course called Acting Styles, colon, Theatricalism and the European Avant-Garde, which is a real long title. And it was very much like a not, it's like non-realism, right? So most of them are so, and it was a, it was a real struggle for some of them because I was like, you're not thinking about action. You're not thinking about objective. Like we're, this is Beckett. <laughs> this is, you know, Brechtian. This is like, I took it probably further historically than it should have been. I moved a bit into like some of the postmodern stuff, but I thought it, it was necessary and they all really enjoyed it. So, you know, they, they like, one of the things they did in that class was work on a piece that Gertrude Stein wrote. Like, how do you, how do we stage these plays of Gertrude Stein's that apps are more about, they're more about language and landscape and they are not at all about action. <laughs> There's no, you know, and they're not about plot. So it's, you know, and that class has been so much fun. I've, I've enjoyed the hell out of teaching that class. It is such a good group of students. There are 18 of them, which is too many. But I love them. They're so, they just go for it. I mean, they just, you know, the feedback that most of them got for their first scene presentation, which was um, they had to make a moment using our toad's uh, spurt of blood. Um, and, and the feedback that most of them got was like, move away from literalism. Like you're still thinking too literally. And so then right. when they got the Stein, the Stein assignment, it was, I mean, they really went for it. It was all over the place and it was so awesome. And, you know, the tricky thing with even a class like that is that so much of what I'm teaching, so much of the material because of the time period, you know, we're talking about the European avant-garde in modern Europe, it's a lot of dead white dudes, you know? And so for me, it's also been a, a, like, how do I get, how do I get women into the mix? How do I get BIPOC and queer artists into the mix? And, and, you know, you find a way to do it. Like what I, what I did was they, when we moved on to the sort of unit on Brechtian theater, I had a lot of them doing scenes written by, you know, young Jean Lee and um, Maria Irene Fornes and, you know, just uh, people, uh, Susan Laurie Parks, you know, we did, had a group do a, a scene from the America play. So these, these plays that are very contemporary, um, but have these, are very informed by these, um, these acting styles that are not they're not literal. They're not realistic. Like, how do we stage that today? Um, and it's it's just been so much fun. And there, I was telling I was telling that that class too. Like, the, a lot of undergraduate programs are not training their actors to do that. They're not teaching actors this sort of modern and postmodern acting style. Like, it's pretty unusual. Um, and they were like, oh, I mean, you know, they I think they had a, a greater appreciation for the curriculum. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it really is about. Like, yeah, we need to know the history. We need to understand where these movements came from. But we also need to think about, like, how they've informed what we're doing now, like how we're making theater today. And I don't, you know, I tell them all the time, like, I love realism. I, I love it. But my favorite plays are inevitably plays that are a blend of realistic moments with highly theatrical moments that are very Brechtian, that are very absurdist, that are very postmodern. Um, it's not just this one thing man, they're, they're good students. They're just like jumping right on board. I love that because I feel like you're preparing them. Oh, it's so important that we send out these students with like the biggest toolkit that we can, because we don't know who they're going to be encountering out yeah. in the professional world. And I would love, oh, I want your two cents in terms of 
like I feel right now, like right now I'm at the helm of a community theater that was run by the same, the same guy for 35 years. And so that, and like the one, the last production that he was about to do, but didn't get to do, you know, because of the pandemic was Picnic by William Ing. Inge. Yeah. I was in a production of that actually. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, I think I said, you know, at one of the holiday parties, I was like, I, you know, I need Picnic as much as I need a, a view from the bridge. Like, I think that they can both go in the trash. Personally, mm-hmm. you know, not everyone might agree with me, but how do we, you know, how do we best prepare these students for a world in which they are going to be encountering a range of directors and theater practitioners and theater leaders, some yeah. of whom are of the old guard of God, everything has to be based in, you know, Shakespeare and Chekhov and all of these, like we have to return to the classic, to the chestnuts that we've produced over and over again. And then the other side of that, one of the things I really loved, among other things, um, that my friend and hero Sarah Porkalab puts out in the world is that seeing the shift culturally from director as theater maker or vision maker to playwright as sort of the person at the helm moving forward in, in theater in the 21st century. And I am misquoting that terribly, but I hope that folks get what I'm putting across. And so folks are going to have to deal with a range of like old school, new school, folks who have different values, um, folks who might not have the same view of representation or even how you treat each other within a rehearsal room how do you prepare them for that that seems like such a tall order I mean most of what I tell them is that like you absolutely will work with people who do not work the way that you want to work and so like how do you navigate that like what do you do (laughs) what do you what do you do to to get through the process and make the very very best of it that you can get what you need out of it and be the be the kindest most compassionate collaborator you can be knowing I will never work with this person again <laughs> like this is not a person I want <laughs> you know like I can't like almost every production that I've worked on even productions in my own company where I've had a hand in making sure I know who's in the room like they're like almost always there's like one or two people that I'm like oh man we are not we're not on the same page really so I'm just like not gonna I'm gonna it's gonna be fine I, you know I can be respectful but we're not gonna work together again not every show but like a lot of them um and I think too that like there's a lot of value in those old plays. I was I was in a production of Picnic when I was 19. Um, I was playing <laughs> I was playing uh, the woman who is like a, a spinster school teacher who like accidentally gets drunk and begs this guy to marry her. It's like horrible. <laughs> it's like not something that I was able to identify with at all. Right. I had such a hard time playing that role. That said, I, I think it's a beautiful play. I think the the issue is, and Jordan Hill, uh, Jordan Tannehill talks about this in in his, some of his writing is that like when we're producing those plays, we have to we have to avoid like making them museum pieces. He calls it museum theater. Like this idea that we like preserve this thing and do it the same way over and over and over again. It's like no, like we don't have to. We're not this is a live art form. It's not a museum. Like, how do we make it live for now? How do we, how can, what can we do to radically reimagine these plays to make them something that isn't just, you know, a history piece that we look and think like, oh man, they were real messed up in the fifties. We're real messed up now. So, you know, what's changed? What hasn't? Like, it's the same with like, I taught, when I was teaching at Whitman College, I taught, um, I was teaching the American theater class, which I love to teach. And I 
taught our town in that class. Like you kind of have to, you can't just not teach our town in an American theater class, in my opinion. And that's because I start at the beginning of American theater and go all the way up to like young Jean Lee and Taylor Mack. Like, you know, it's like a, a really huge spectrum, but our town is an important play in the history of the trajectory of the American theater. So I teach it. And there were some students who just were like, we don't like this play because it is so heteronormative. It is like so binary. And I was like, yeah, it is. And I think that that commentary is an intentional commentary. The player I was making at the time, because he's, he was queer as far as we know. Um, so like, how can we, what can, how can we take that play and reimagine it so that it feels more relevant to our lives now? I think it's possible. You know, how can, how can we put a sort of postmodern or contemporary or post-contemporary, where are we? I don't even know, post-contemporary lens on, you know, on these plays and make them, and, and make them something. And, and a lot of that has to do, like, a lot of that is possible with, you know, through devising methodologies, which I know, you know, you're aware of because you did a lot of that at Naropa. But um, for me, it's like, there's value in learning them. I, I personally don't, I mean, I'm kind of with you. A lot of the times I don't want to do the, I don't really want to work on those plays. I'd, I'd rather work on something new and make something new. Um, but when someone can take one of those texts and really radically reimagine it and do something really beautiful with it, I, I love going to that stuff. I just don't want to, I don't want to go see Death of a Salesman if it's the same old Death of a Salesman that I've seen 900 times, you know? Right. No, absolutely. And I think the flip side of all this philosophy and values is sometimes one needs a paycheck. Um, yes. Yep. And so let me put you on the spot here. So you're, you're just given a contract that you can't, you can't refuse uh, mm -hmm. to do, to do a, a modern version of our town, just off the top of your head. How, where, where do you start? Where should one start with something like that? And I agree. Our town, our town is never going away. Yeah. Right? It's just never going away. Are we, does the estate of Thornton Wilder allow us to use color conscious casting or gender mm -hmm. diverse casting that I guess that maybe is the first question, right? Is yeah. His estate. Right. Yeah. His estate is much more open to that than say like Beckett. Um, yeah. There have been, there have been productions where the stage manager is played by a woman. There have been productions where there's been cross gender casting um, and certainly casting across different race and ethnicities. And for me, it's like, that's great. And don't ask someone to erase themselves in that process. Right. So if you're, if you're casting a woman as the stage manager, don't, don't say like, now you have to forget that you were ever a woman, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, or if you're casting, you know, um, a non-binary person in, you know, as, as one of the teenagers, the, as Emily or George, let them like find the non the, play that as a non-binary character like why you know i for me it really shouldn't matter if you're if you're casting like a, a you know a, a black actor as one of the fathers like let that person bring their own personal history to the development of that role it's going to be something really beautiful that that is going to be unique to them in their experience and so yeah i mean i think for me like where do you start with that i for a, a play like our town which is supposed to be about like the quintessential small American town, it, like from my perspective, like, what does that mean anymore? You know, what it, it, it used to mean a predominantly white town. You think about a play like our town and the, the people who lived on the other side of the tracks were the Polish people, <laughs> like that's, you know? Yep. Um, and so for me, yeah, it is about casting, like 
what is what is the best way we can like really diversify this and show how many different experiences can be within this this universe and it's also a design question like what is the, what does it look like you know what does it sound like how can we how can we imagine what what grover's corners looks like now you know yeah i you know and that's a play that again i love that play it if someone was said, said to me like i'd like for you to I'd like to cast you in a production of Our Town. I would consider it because I do love that play. But but I would have questions about like, well, what's the vision? Like, what are we, how are we, how are we approaching it? I think that you're in, one of the things I respect so much about you is that you're in a really unique position to not only be creating, you know, not only to be in the academic space, but to also be in the space of continuing to produce with Square Product Theater. And the question, I'm forming, I'm, I'm, stumbling forward with this question, but I really want to pull on that thread for both, because I think, unfortunately, people perceive diverse casting to be more accessible or possible in academic settings than it is in a professional setting, because we are given more grace, or it's more of an educational opportunity, and, and so people categorize it in a different way. But I love so much about what you're saying in terms of if you bring uh, an actor from a historically marginalized group into a space to play a classical role or a role from a show that we've seen many times, how do you, you know, what is your advice on creating that space where their personal history, as much as they want to share of it into that character and their voice is valued in that mm -hmm. process instead of, I, I feel that when we do this equity, diversity and inclusion work, there's so many folks who stop short of, well, I brought the people into the room. I auditioned them didn't really work out or I have this handful of folks from historically marginalized groups who have I've cast I've done it right like that's mm -hmm. it right like yeah. the cast end of the day I can you know feel good about about the work that I've done you sort of heard the question in that rambling that I did yeah I mean I think it's really about like making sure that when you invite people into the space to collaborate with you that they understand that they are collaborator with a voice like with an with with a um and and that certainly is not the way that all theater in this country works. I know that most theater in this country is very hierarchical. Um, my spaces are not so hierarchical. So when I'm working on a show with Square Product, I mean, we really are working more in an ensemble modality. And that's how I work in my classroom. It's how I work in academic rehearsal as well. It's like, yeah, I may be the person who's called the director, but I want to hear other people's ideas. I, I'm not, you know... I feel like I sometimes have a lot of great ideas and uh, other people also have great ideas that might really, really work and complement, you know, what other people are bringing to the table. And so I think it really is about, you know, setting the tone early, like this is a collaboration from my perspective. Um, I want to, you know, I want to hear about what you're experiencing. I want to hear any thoughts and ideas you have. Um, I think that what theater makers bring to the table, bring to the table of themselves is the most interesting thing they can bring to the table. I'm not super interested in asking someone to pretend to be something that they're not. I'm very, very interested in actors who can find the character that they're being asked to play within themselves so that, so that what they have to bring of their own humanity, I mean, that's what's most interesting to me is what people bring of their own humanity, of their own experiences, um, even if it's not verbalized, but it's just, it's just there, you know, within the work that they're doing because it's who they are even when we're doing something that's that's a very physical process or a very theatrical you know more less realistic uh you know it's it's the it's the human being underneath all of that that is what what is so compelling and and what that person has experienced and what what how how they perceive the world based on what they've experienced 
so for me I try to I try to make space you know from the from the first day even from auditions of like I want to see you like I'm I'm inviting you into the space as a human being and that means all of you that means your brain your heart your body all of it like I I want you know your spirit I am uh, I'm not here necessarily in the same way that a lot of directors are which is like okay now I want you to move over here and sit down on that word I, like I just sort of that's one way of working and it's great it's fine it's just but it's not the way I work I'm I'm much more interested in getting a sense of like how how the performers and how the designers are thinking about their process and I realize you know it's we live in a very product oriented culture <laughs> and I'm a big fan of the product I am a big fan of the show opening and then being able to perform it and <laughs> But I think the process is really, really important. And, and it's something that I think we don't focus on enough and we don't take enough time for in our culture because we just don't have, we don't have the resources for it in the same way, which is a shame. It really, it really is. I mean, so much of what you're saying, I resonate with. And this, <laughs> I think this, I think this will be a good question for other folks too, but maybe this is, you know, a personal thing for me. I joke that I take a Ted Lasso approach to directing where mm -hmm. you're coming in, I already believe in you and I want you to experience personal growth from the beginning to the end of this rehearsal process, whatever mm -hmm. that means to you. And that may look very different from direct, you know, from actor to actor. And one of the challenges that I find is actors who have not been trained in that way, actors who have been trained more so as for lack of a better word, chess pieces in a rehearsal mm -hmm. process of, sit there, go there, don't do anything other than what I am telling you as the director. They come into a space that is collaborative and sometimes they can feel, sometimes they are, they're defensive or they feel lost because they have not been given that freedom or that voice before. And I think at my best as a director or any of us as directors, we help them through that journey and they feel empowered at the end of it to work in either kind of space. I think on the negative side of that, sometimes it comes out sideways as sexism or homophobia or mm -hmm. transphobia or whatever it is of, of attacking, especially, you know, myself, I'm 37 years old. I'm non-binary. I look a bit younger than I do. I'm perceived as female in spaces. And I, I think I get from some actors that I come across, they mistake kindness for weakness is a very mm -hmm. long way of, uh, you know, a short way of summing that all up. How do you, I mean, have you had similar experiences and how do you sort of, how do you combat that when you're not coming in as a dictator, as a theater? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. I look younger than I am. Uh, I am a woman and, and very like present, very female, um, you know, even though I never wear a dress ever in my <laughs> life. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the sort of, yeah, I mean, you have people who call you kiddo and I'm like, I... I have an MFA. I have a PhD. I run a professional theater company. I'm not. I'm not a child. I'm an adult. I know. Like I know what I'm doing. It's. It's not a problem that I've had in a while, at least um, with Square Product, because for the most part, I know the people that I'm working with. Right. I mean, like it's a small theater community. I mean, even even so, like with Dance Nation this summer, there were several actors in that show that I'd never worked with before, but I think we got really lucky with a, a really great cast. And the younger actors, especially, were just like very, very open. I mean, they were right. very open. They were not um, at all put off by a different way of working. And I think that Square works in a way that's pretty different than most of them were accustomed to. Um, 
but they were really open to the process. And, uh, you know, for me, it's just kind of like, I mean, it's part of the reason I think that for basically Square's entire history, I, all of the, you know, like all of the work we've done has been work. Like most of it has been work written by women when it's work that's not written by women. It's usually work that features that primarily features really strong female characters. We have mostly hired female or non-binary directors. Uh, I mean, I just, I, I, you know, have for better or for worse worked mostly with women and non-binary people for the almost the entirety of the the company's history which you know not to say like hashtag not all men but it's just kind of um you know it's just a it just ends up being a space that's a little more welcoming and a little more um open to to things that to, to just to a different way of working um so it's pretty rare that i mean i certainly have had some, I mean, I've had experiences working specifically with Square Products with some people that I've had to be like, okay, I'm not going to work with that person again, not because they had a different way of working, but because of how disrespectful they were. Right. Do you think it's incumbent on you to tell them that or no? Like, um, that's something I struggle with. Like, how yeah. much do they break it down for a person and how much is it you should know what professionalism is by now? And yeah. you, by your behavior, you have proven that either you don't know what professionalism is or you don't care. What professionalism mm-hmm. is. It depends on the situation, you know, because there, I, there are some situations where you just, I'm just kind of like, I'm just going to wash my hands of this because it does not feel worth my time. It feels like this is a person who is absolutely not going to hear anything that I have to say. But to quote Jess Buttery, my dear friend and lighting designer, we shouldn't have to teach men how to be people. Woof. You know, I mean, we had a situation where she was just like, this should not be our job to teach this man how to be a person. And like how to treat other people done, you know, and she was just like, done, I'm done. And, uh, you know, that's why I work with people like Jess, <laughs> like she's, <laughs> you know, we have a very similar philosophy. Like we are there to get the shit done and we have a, a great time doing it. And if there's someone who's dragging us down with their sort of negative attitude and, and treating us like we're children, like idiot idiot women children we just kind of don't I just don't do it I I am yeah I'm too old for that (laughs) heard and agreed for folks who don't know about square product theater can you give us the inside the actor's studio arc of how it came to be and what your priorities are sure so for folks that don't know of us so like basically everyone um we are the least well-known professional-ish theater company in Boulder, Colorado, I think, even though we've been around since 2006. I mean, we basically, I started Square Product Theater in 2006 because I was in Boulder, Colorado. I'd moved there from Chicago and I really wanted to do theater and I was looking around and there were really at that time only three theater companies in Boulder. One was the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. One was the Boulder Dinner Theater. And one was the Upstart Crow. And the Upstart Crow is a community theater that only does uncut, unedited versions of classical plays. So those are three really, really specific things. None of them being the thing that I really wanted to do, which was work on new contemporary theater. Some of it, some of it like devised original theater and some of it just, you know, really new contemporary plays that otherwise weren't being produced in Boulder. So I started Square Products with this sort of goal of like, yeah, I really want to work on this. I want to make contemporary theater. I want to produce contemporary plays. And from the beginning, we've produced a ton of plays written by women and or 
BIPOC playwrights and plays that are ensemble created. Um, we've had a lot of great collaborations. We were also a company for a long time that collaborated really, really regularly with other theater companies to produce new work and make new work. And and just thank you. I mean, I, y'all really were the ones who helped us with the, non, the non-binary monologues project got asked to create a theater, a piece of a new piece of theater that was the length of a Comic-Con panel. Yeah. And y'all really showed up in terms of the funding and, and just creating the opportunity for us to have more infrastructure while doing that. So thank yeah. you. That was something that you were producing from afar, right? You weren't in the room. Yeah. I was, teaching, was, yeah, I was teaching, oh, I was teaching in London that year. So I was producing. That was a from wild, yeah, that was a wild UK. Still, and um, yeah. just shout out to Ayla Sullivan, who is. Oh my God, they're so great. They are one of the, if y'all don't know Ayla Sullivan and you're listening to this podcast, um, you need to know them and I'm going to drop their Instagram in, in the yeah, do. Um, But someone who is as embodied as they are to go from a BFA in acting to an MFA in playwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm calling it now, you know, Tony nomination or Pulitzer Prize nomination in the next 10 to 15 years. I fully believe. Yeah, that. they're great. I mean, they're just, Ayla is one of those artists who is just so, I mean, they're just so sharp and they're so compelling in so many different ways. They were the, they were the, the youth poet laureate of Colorado when I met them. And yeah, they, so they worked on that show with you, the non-binary monologues project. And then they auditioned for Everything Was Stolen, which is a show that I made while I was in London. And then I did like um, a premiere in Denver and they weren't actually available for the performance dates, which was a bummer. Um, so I asked them if they would, you know, assistant direct with me and they were fantastic. They were so great to work with. Yeah. I mean, you know, for us, it's sort of like I'm as as a person who is, you know, has some areas in which I'm, you know, like a queer, queer person. I'm a woman. Um, I, you know, I, from the beginning was really interested as far as square product goes in, in making work that sort of highlights voices that are not as well represented on stages, especially on stages in Colorado. And for a long time, we were the only company in Boulder that was doing any work written by women. (laughs) It's kind of, kind of wild. Um, and that was not that long, you know, that was like 2006, 2007, 2008. So yeah, I mean, just from the beginning, that's what we've been what we've been doing, and and that's not to say that we don't produce plays written by men. We definitely have. I like Five Lesbians Eating a Quiche is a fine example of that. It's a play that was developed by the new coordinates in Chicago and was written by a couple of of dudes, but it's all the characters are women and they're great characters. So that you know, I mean, um, or we did a play called House of Gold, um, which Greg Moss wrote, which is a brilliant play. Um, in which John Benet Ramsey is a character in that play. And, you know, again, like great, just a really great role and also really great, in my opinion, a great play for Boulder where John Benet Ramsey was, you know, um, murdered. Um, the, the people of Boulder didn't think it was a great play for Boulder, but I did. <laughs> right. When you, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how y'all are moving from a season model to a project-based model. Can yeah. you talk about that decision? And then also, I feel like you are one of the most well-read theater artists that I know. How do you find plays and how do you decide which ones rise to the top in terms of season pro- um, project programming? Well, um, we moved from a season model to a project model a few years ago, actually, 
in part because it became increasingly difficult to plan a season in Boulder because there's not space in Boulder to produce a season. Um, it's really, really hard to get appropriate, adequate space for the kinds of things we do. Cause we do a lot of, like our shows have a lot of tech. Um, we have a really brilliant lighting designer, Jess Buttery, her lights are gorgeous. Um, we build a lot of projection and sound. And for us too, like, you know, as a, as a company that's less hierarchical and more ensemble oriented, it just kind of made more sense for us to say, to, to take a step back and be like, okay, instead of planning a three to five show season where we are just like scrambling to find a space to do shows, why don't we focus on one project? And then when that one is done, we can focus on the next project. So we move from project to project so that we're really just investing our time and resources in the one thing that we're working on at that, at that time. And so it, it, for us, it's great because it's, it's, it's allowed us to become a bit more process oriented and less product oriented. Because when you say like, okay, we're going to do these four shows this year, you know, like this has to open, like you have to have, you know, opening and closing dates. You have to have run dates. You have to know it, like exactly where you're going to do those shows, even though there's not space to do them anywhere in Boulder. And it becomes, it, it just became so challenging. And, and for us to like be able to take a step back and say like, okay, you know what, we're going to work. This is the project we're going to work on. And we are going to do that project in the summer. So where can we find a space in the summer to do that project? Um, and we can like really focus on that for a few months. As far as like how I get materials to program, I mean, like so much of what we're doing is, is original work. So it just kind of depends on a, on a number of factors. But some, some of the plays we've done have been things like, They've been plays that people have sent to me, either playwrights or directors who have said like, oh, hey, I know, you know, so my friend Brenda Withers, for instance, is a playwright and an actor, a really, really great actor. Um, and she had a show that I knew a little bit about. I was like, why don't you send me that script? I'd like to have a look at it. It's, called, it's a play called The Ding Dongs. And I read it and was like, this is great. This is a totally great play for us. It's three people. It's pretty minimal stuff, like, and it's a really well-written, like, sort of absurdist piece of theater. Um, and same with Five Lesbians Eating a Quiche, actually. I had a couple of friends who were working for the company that developed that play originally in Chicago who shopped it to me. They just were like, hey, you should read this play. We think you, we think you dig it. And so they sent it to me. I read it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is hilarious. This is awesome. Can we do it? And so we were only the second production ever of that play. Um, before it was published and before it became a kind of a cult hit, actually. So we get plays that way. You know, House of Gold, for instance, was a play that Gleason had seen, I think maybe, and Gleason's my associate artistic director and they're based in Los Angeles. I think maybe they had seen it in LA and were like, oh man, this play feels like it could be a really interesting choice for us. Um, so I reached out to Greg, the playwright, because it's not published anywhere. So I emailed him and he sent me the script. You know, so a lot of it, I mean, I also get plays like people randomly who have seen some of our shows or who know me will send me something that they think I'll like, you know, and I'll read it and be like, oh, I do like this. I cannot do it because it's going to cost too much money or um, right. we can do it in like three years as we fundraise for three years. Because um, the same with funding, the same is true of funding as, as space in Boulder. We're all just kind of passing around the same $20 bill. Um, there's very little funding and there's very little space. But, you know, I mean... I think I've been pretty lucky, like thing, like some really great projects have just sort of been flung at me from afar that have like landed on my face and I've read them and been like, oh, this is, yeah, this will work. Let's do this. Can you talk a little bit about one of the, one of the performances of that, and I don't know if you would consider that a part of your season or maybe a special event, but um, Celebration Florida? Yeah. 
was just one of the most unique theatrical experiences I've ever had. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're so we're doing that again, actually. Um, awesome. We're going to do that again in March. It's a good one for us because um, so that's a that's a that's a piece that Greg uh, Wohead wrote. And he's he actually grew up really close to where I grew up in Texas, um, but he was based in London the year that I was teaching in London. He's now actually in Portugal in Lisbon, but um, he was based in London for a long time. And and it was a play that I my partner was visiting and I was like, let's go see this. Let's go see this random show that I know nothing about at the Soho Playhouse or wherever it was. And we went down and saw it and. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I think this is something we could do with Square Products because it's 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 a really beautiful show and it's really simple and it's two performers who have not rehearsed the piece and who have never met each other. Like that's the requirement. So when you do a run of it, you have to have like a, <laughs> a very detailed spreadsheet with like all these performers and like trying to match them with people that they hadn't met in Denver and Boulder, which is hard because everybody knows everybody. So it was really challenging to make that happen, but it miraculously happened. Um, we were able to get enough people who didn't know each other. Um, but yeah, that show is, it's a great show because it doesn't, you know, take a lot of resources, but it still, I think is a really impactful for the audience. Like it really, it's just a really beautiful and moving piece of, of theater that, that he made. Um, and yeah, I mean, I do consider that like part of our, our regular programming because, you know, even though it was not a, a process in the same way, it was still a process of like organizing the whole thing. And, and, um, honestly, the process of organizing the actors was like, <laughs> like almost challenging. Oh yeah. 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 It was so, it was, it was really hard to find all these pairs of actors who had never met each other before. Um, so yeah, we're actually planning to do that again in Boulder in March and then, um, here also in central New York. I think it's a great way in places like this. I think it's a great way to get students who've never met each other from other institutions together like I could get you know I could have a student from Hamilton and like maybe a student from Colgate or a student from Utica University or a student from Syracuse you know none of these places are that far and you know I mean it's to say like you were in Boulder long enough to know that like no one from Naropa communicates with anyone at CU like even though they're just down the hill like <laughs> they're walking distance oh. like no there's no crossover really and the same is true here like there's you know, Utica University is 20 minutes away from Hamilton. Colgate is 20 or 30 minutes away from Hamilton. There's no reason like we shouldn't at some point intermingle our students, like get, let them get to know each other. So it feels like an opportunity to build community in a way. Um, but yeah, I mean, that just, you know, that just was a show that I like randomly like chose to go see in London and Greg was there. And so I very awkwardly approached him and <laughs> he probably thought I was crazy, but I just was like, Hey, I just saw your show. Um, I run a theater company in Boulder. I really think I'd like to do that show sometime. If that's okay. And he was like, all right, <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah. Awesome. What's next. What's next for you. What excites you? Mm -hmm. What have been your theatrical highlights? We're recording this in, you know, almost mid December. What have been, what have been the highlights theatrically of this year and, and where do you go next? Um, well, this year, I mean, certainly the highlight for me was Dance Nation. We did a regional regional premiere of Dance Nation this summer in Boulder. And that's a play that we had been trying to do since 2019. So it was really great to finally be able to do it. Um, we had scheduled it to, to premiere in the summer of 2019. And then um, 
the director's father died, the choreographer's father died, and my father died. And I just was kind of like, my dad was the last one to die. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this right now. My dad died at the end of April. The show was supposed to open in June. And I was like, I, I, we don't even have a cat. Cause my dad had been so sick. Like I hadn't even really gotten my shit together to do a cast <laughs> figured out or anything. And it's a big cast. And the playwright was really generous um, and was like, yeah, just hold on to the rights, do it next summer. And then the pandemic hit. So we had two pandemic summers and we couldn't really do it. So it was really great to finally be able to do it this summer. It's such a great team, such a great cast. And it was a heavy lift. I'm not going to lie. It was like a really heavy lift for me as an actor and a producer. Um, but it's such a great script. I had so much fun working on it and so much fun performing it. It's a, it's a script that's really fun to perform, even though the dancing almost killed me. And <laughs> Lorianne and I almost broke up because they were choreographing. And I was like, I'm going to murder you. <laughs> so you changing the choreography and I'm not a dancer. I'm going to have to kill you now. And then, you know, another highlight for me was actually a workshop of a piece that I am now planning to more fully develop and premiere next summer in Colorado. Um, I taught, so I was at Sewanee in the University of the South last year as a visiting professor in on the Cumberland Plateau in Tennessee. It's a really beautiful area. And I was teaching devising there. I had a devising class and there were only four students in it. And the end project for that class was like, we're going to make a piece together. What do we want to make? And they really, really wanted to make a piece about climate change, which I was like, Ugh, yeah. I really do not <laughs> don't want to do it. Like so many people in Boulder have been like, you all like Square should make a climate change piece. Square should make a climate change piece. And I've just been so resistant to it because it feels so overwhelming. But that's what they wanted to do. So I was like, all right, it's like, we'll, we're going to do it. And so we made a 35 minute piece about the climate crisis, but it's like very nonlinear, not plot driven. They developed characters, like one of them developed a character who's like an amateur astronomer. One of them was a, a park ranger. One of them was playing like a second grade, second grader. The four horsemen of the apocalypse were in the piece. And like, you know, it's just a, I was really proud of, of what we all made together. And so I've, I've reached out to a couple of the students that were in that class the two who generated a lot of text that I really, really liked. And yeah, I think the plan is to develop that piece. It's, it's a piece that will be called, it's, it's called, oh, what is it called? Things We Will Miss. Things We Will Miss. Mm. What it's called. And it's kind of an elegy, um, some meditations on the climate crisis, but it's sort of, I don't know, it's Nathaniel Klein was one of my students there. He's now working in Madison, I want to say. So he's, he's, up there by you um and he's game to keep working on it and he's a really strong writer just like a really just you know very young I mean he just graduated from college but wrote some really strong material for that piece and Emma Miller was one of the students who also generated some strong material and she'll be graduating this year and I'm hoping to be able to bring them out to Colorado and like make it into a full-length piece of theater that is not all text driven. Like I've already talked to Jess about Jess really doesn't want to come back out to Colorado, but I'm going to make her come back out to Colorado, you know, about her making like part of it that is, that starts with light. Like what, you know, can you build something that starts with light that like, that's our starting point instead of text always being the starting point. Um, and yeah, we have a whole team, you know, we've had one meeting so far, but some of, some of our members who are in Chicago, some who are in LA and then some who are in uh, Denver Boulder, all wanting to work on it. So that's the plan for this summer. Summer 23 is to do 
this world premiere of things we will miss. And it'll be kind of, you know, more of a collage style, a collage style piece about living on the planet in this, in this time, this, you know, embracing impermanence. That's just, I'm taking a moment, embracing impermanences. That's a phrase. That's a phrase that can hit you, hit you in the gut yeah. a little bit. As we sort of wind down a bit, do you, I mean, how necessary do you think it is to prepare emerging theater artists to be able to create their own work? Is it a necessity now that wasn't, you know, wasn't sort of necessary even five, 10 years ago? I, I just feel that I feel kind like it's leaning more towards yes than ever before. I would say yes. I mean, I taught devising this semester too at Hamilton and and so much of what I've heard from those students is like, I never realized that this was even possible that we could do something like this. So I think it's important just to even, because when I was in college, it wasn't something I was thinking about. And I was in college many, many years ago. Um, but I wasn't thinking, you know, it was not, Aside from, I went to Emerson College, so there were a lot of comedy troops. So aside, but aside from the comedy troops, no one was really making anything new. It wasn't even presented as an option. So I think, you know, I think it is important. I think that students who are choosing to study theater at this time in history, you know, have the potential to to continue develop to develop their artistry to make to make these these pieces that I don't know to make these pieces that can just make us reflect on this time in history and what you know what our purpose is and it's it's hard to think about those things in a way right I mean at all times but like right now just feels like everything feels so existential because of the climate crisis and because of how how divided at least we are in this country and I think a lot of places that there's just like it it almost feels like what can we do what can we like what what can we do to come together and and put petty differences aside and actually understand what it means to be a human being in this time and in this place and and what our responsibilities are for helping each other and for making things better as as cheesy as all of that sounds you know yeah and I think that I think that teaching students that it's possible for them to make something to explore these questions through their art as artists is is hugely is value hugely valuable and hugely important that it's not you know we we have this huge enormous library of theatrical literature available to us and that's not it like there's there's so much more that can be done there's so many more stories to be told Ooh, that's a good that's a good line to go out on i think don't you sure so many more stories to be told emily thank you so much for spending your time with me and sharing all of your theatrical experience and geekery i am i am honored Thanks. I'm honored that you invited me. Thanks for thinking of me. You, I'll give you the, the Midwest. You'll betcha. Sure, you betcha. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was edited by CJ Higgins and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.